First Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1, reading together. Let's read through the chapter. I'll read aloud and you read silently along with me. The Word of God says to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, it has been a full day of worship. Lord, how our hearts have been turned towards you through the singing the proclamation of your word. Lord, it's been a full day of just rejoicing in your work. I pray that even now as we look at your word, that God, you would help us to look at it accurately so that we may apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started our study looking at a picture of an ideal church. If a picture is really worth a thousand words, then it must be presented clearly for all to be able to see the details portrayed in the picture. I am not a professional photographer. I took one college class, and it's like, you know, you're saying taking one college course in photography doesn't necessarily make you the expert. It's like a Greek student taking first-year Greek and saying, hey, I know all things about translations and how to translate the New Testament. It doesn't make you an expert yet. However, it did give me some opportunities to learn different elements of photography that were helpful to knowing what takes a good picture, what makes up a good picture. You can take a picture of the Grand Canyon on a clear, starry night with a camera on your phone using the standard settings. But do not be surprised if you go to print that picture and it does not come out with the clarity or the details that you were hoping to capture. Now, the technology of our cameras, the cameras on our phones specifically, have come a, a long way. Back from the flip phone 2.6 megapixel to now, I think, a 120 megapixel camera on the iPhone 12 Plus Pro, whatever the iPhone is now. I'm not here to debate on whether one should abandon the SLR camera, for those of you who might know that more professional world, for the convenience of the phone. However, if one wants to capture the intricate details of the stars along with the silhouette of the canyon, one has to know how to use their camera effectively. They must learn how to adjust their settings, their light speed, their, their shutter speed, and the image control and how much is going to let the, the, the lens is going to let the image in and light in. 
Paul has captured through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a photo for us to see what an ideal church must look like. And last week, we began to look with helping us see what we must bring the picture of the church into a clear view. As we found in chapter 1 and verse 1 last week, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus there, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. We looked at the fact that the church is founded, her origin is in God, that God is the author. And we use his word to describe what that looks like. We found, we discovered that her focus is on the people, not the property or programs. It's the ones who have acknowledged and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ that make up the church. If the property was taken away from us, we would still be the church. If the programs in our ministry were no longer operable, we would still be the church. What we find, though, with those programs and property is that when the focus in the primary sea is to draw them into the Word of God and to draw our, close, our relationship closer to Christ, they become profitable. And then we saw last week with this that her life is found in Christ and because of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, and verse 18, that Christ will build His church. He can only use those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. We have to come to Him. We must see ourselves as primarily new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God the Father. So if the origin of the church is in God, and if Christ will build his church, then what is our role? I don't doubt that many of us have asked that question at some point in time. You know, even while being on staff here at Tri-City Baptist Church, I have asked that question, what is my role within the church? It is easy for us to take ministry opportunities as our main role in the church. And sometimes we look at different people serving in various capacities and think that we really don't have a role. They're already fulfilling every role that's possible. And when we begin to have that perception, we tend to have a blurry view of God's intention for the church. Have you ever stopped and just gazed at a picture for quite some time? Maybe it's a picture in your house of a a mountainous scene. Maybe it is a meadow with a lake or a stream in the middle. Or even it's just a family portrait taken somewhere in God's creation. A good quality photo can oftentimes grab our attention and hold it for quite some time. You begin to look at the intricate details that were taken in the picture. We see how many details were captured by the photographer at the time when the picture was taken. And there may be even times where you go back to that photo and see other details that you hadn't seen before. Does that mean that those details weren't in the picture before or that they all of a sudden just appeared? No, of course not. We just were not looking for them or hadn't caught our attention just yet. But isn't it fascinating that God's Word does the same thing? When we are digging into it, when we look further at the text here of chapter 1, we will see some details captured in the picture that are worth us pointing out. And I'd like for us to take tonight and see four details we must see if we are going to have a clear view, a clear clear view of ministry. Let me reread my sentence. 
I would like for us to look at four details we must see if we are going to have a clear view of ministry in the church or of the church. We began last week, we did get through this at the beginning of verses 2 through 10 is the primary focus of this. We looked at beginning with having a, a focus of prayer. If we are going to have a clear view of ministry in the church, we must have a focus of prayer. Paul begins his letter here in verse 2. We think... We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. It's easy for us oftentimes in the, in the t Pauline text to begin to read this introduction and to really kind of skip over the prayer letter, the prayer aspect of what Paul is doing. And let me encourage us tonight not to skip over that, but to take notice of how Paul prays for the Thessalonians here. I put these texts up from last week that we looked at a few of them just so you could take them down and write them down to encourage you to take time to observe how Paul prays for the different churches that he's writing to or the different individuals that he's writing to. Notice how he thanks God for them. One that particularly captures my attention was in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, my joy is to, is to come and teach you. You need me to come teach you, but not so that I have all the answers for you that I may grow along with you, keeping that servant's heart that he desires to grow alongside of them in their walk with Christ. 1 Corinthians, I love the, the concept that although it's a frustrating letter for Paul to write, a church that just doesn't seem to quite understand what being a Christian or living the Christian life should look like, and Paul yet still finds when we would critique and criticize a church of that nature, he finds reason to give thanks to God and encourage them along the way. And you can see there in the other references that I'd encourage you again to write those down Oftentimes it's said, you know, maybe you've been, you've been encouraged to, in, your, in your struggle with the Lord. Somebody might come to you and say, well, you just need to pray more. And your question is, well, how do I do that? Looking at some of these texts and references are good opportunities and good examples for you to see. How do I give thanks to the Lord? How can I use the situation around me to give praise unto the Lord? How can I pray for others around me? He uses a present tense verb here in the active voice, which means he's continually thanking God. Paul has a habit of prayer. I'm curious if we have that same habit. Paul's going to say in 1 Thessalonians 5, as we get to the end of that later on, to pray without ceasing. And when you look at these different examples here, you'll see an evidence of prayer without ceasing. Not that he's constantly muttering and mumbling under his breath, but that his thoughts, his intents, and his actions are always directed towards the Lord. He's in constant communion with his God. This is not a prayer of acknowledgement to the Lord that he knows your need and leaves it to leave it there. It is a constant acknowledgement of our need of God's intervention and to trust him to answer. He's specific in his thankfulness to the Lord. I was challenged by this and God's been working on this in my own life over the last few weeks. I have found that as I give thanks to the Lord for the people he has placed in my life and have genuinely prayed for them, how much more joy is present in my life. I find that when I'm praying for others and making a habit of prayer in my life, I don't tend to nitpick petty details as often. I find that when I pray for others 
and genuinely want to see them grow in their relationship with Christ and in thanking God for putting them into my life, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt more often. I tend to just enjoy the relationships I have and that God has placed in my life. I've been working to make this a habit in my life even this past week. Some of you know I've shared this story with a few of you. I was leaving a, a voicemail with a vendor for something on a, one of our church vans earlier this week. And I was just kind of walking through the, the voicemail application and kind of walking through saying what I needed to say. And at the end of the voicemail, I ended with, In Jesus' name I pray. in that moment you're like do I just hang up or do I say have a great day <laughs> what do you do with that that was an awkward callback. <clears throat> actually thankfully when he called me back his answer to me was you didn't finish your prayer <laughs> I was like what do you mean <laughs> he said what, what do you say at the end of your prayer I said amen he's like thank you <laughs> oh. I don't say that to be a discouragement to praying and the habit of prayer, what happens in your conversations with others, but it does mean that when you're making a habit of prayer, it does tend to come out in ways sometimes that you don't ever envision it to. And I make no apologies personally, even when the man called me back, I didn't apologize and say, well, I'm so sorry I did that. I said, you know, hey, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm thankful the Lord's been working in my life. And thankfully, he's a, he's a born-again believer, and I got to you know, hear his testimony for the Lord, and what a, what a great opportunity that was. But it was fun. <laughs> Paul, just, Paul didn't just thank the Lord for general things going on in Thessalonica. He was specific. And you're going to see our second detail found in this picture of having a clear view of ministry is seeing the evidence of Christ at work. Look at what he says. And again, we finished with this last week and kind of taking a look, so I won't go into as much detail on it this week as we did. But he begins to list out the specifics of what he's thankful for with the Thessalonian church here. He says in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. In verse 3, look at the details in which he's pointing out in the picture he's put out here. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. In the sight, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, our God and Father. He begins with the work of faith, labor, and love, and patience of hope. Faith, love, and hope are, are, are critical identities to who we are as Christians and what we look at and qualities of, of genuine Christianity. And it's no doubt that Paul was probably preaching on this when he was in Corinth at the time he's writing this letter in Thessalonica, that it's, it's fresh and evident on his mind, and it becomes an illustration to them in Corinth of look at a church who's doing this. And when he thanks the Lord, he's saying, look at your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. He's not publishing a works-based salvation here by saying your work of faith, but is wanting us to see that faith takes work. So what is this work of faith that Paul speaks of? He really sums it up in verse 9 when he says that you have turned from idols unto God. You have turned away from what you used to and what your, your natural habit is to, to facing what, the reality of who God is in your life. That is faith at work. It's not merely a belief. It's something that changes you. It's more than a verbal affirmation of the truth. It is a demonstration of the truth. 
Faith makes you turn from what is wrong to what is right. From dark and hurtful things to right, true, and healthy things. And especially faith will turn you from worship, the worship of idols, to God. You say, but Pastor Jason, what does that mean? What is the significance of that? If you understood the culture of Thessalonica, that every business transaction, most business transactions were often made official with a sacrifice to some sort of deity. So their work of faith meant that their business transactions would have to change. Their way of doing business and their way of being seen in the community was going to be different. What was it going to cost them? What was it going to cost their family? And yet they chose to walk by faith. They put their faith and trust in Christ by faith. My works are not my endeavor to obtain favor from God or to develop a righteous standing before him, but they are an expression of my appreciation for all the goodness that God has bestowed upon me. He commands me to deny myself, to take up my cross and to follow him. He commands me to be his witness. In doing those things, they are not works that seek to be righteous before God, but they are the obedience of faith. When you struggle with the idea and the concept of faith, let me encourage you to read the Old Testament story of Joseph. When you read the Old Testament story of Joseph, as he walks through his life, you see kind of an overall theme that God's unending faithfulness in Joseph's life. That you see the the faithfulness of God in, in the midst of circumstances that don't always dictate it. That God is still present with him. And that Joseph sustained, uh, demonstrated a God-sustained faithfulness. He gives us, number two, the labor of love here. It's far from simply being an emotion. Love sought the best for the other and labored for the other's benefits. His labor of love was that it was a constant work, not about a convenience. It was a sacrificial love. Their motives were pure, and it seemed to be a pure understanding of what Jesus meant in the Gospels when he stated that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then the outflow of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. As you read and study the qualities of God's true love, you become aware of the areas where your love needs to evolve. Have you found that? usually displays itself in a lack of patience towards people or situations. This growth starts when we begin to comprehend the dimensions of God's love for us. Fully experiencing God's perfect love enables us to ignite our own hearts and actions with Christ-like love, making us true imitators of his love. Then he ends a faithful aspect here. Again, the demonstration of his patience of hope, number three. The patience of hope means the endurance here. It's the same word. The word patience is the same word that has, is being used in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, to run with endurance. It means to place myself under. And this patience of hope means I'm going to place myself under this persecution or knowing what's coming ahead even without knowing, with the expectation of hope that Christ will soon return. Knowing that 
to be with Christ is way better than anything else we could ever think and imagine. Christians live expectantly and hope is evidence of a genuineness, genuine, of their genuineness of their... I should write better. Christians living expectantly is evidence of the genuineness of their commitment to and confidence in the Lord. It is the proof of a genuine faith that Paul was celebrating in his thanksgiving. Endurance becomes the ability to remain steadfast and persevere in the face of suffering or temptation. And the source of this perseverance was not some inner resolve or personal strength, but in their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and looking for his return. Seeing the evidence of Christ at work allows us to see the details or the detail of the assurance of our salvation. Look at what he says in verse 4 and 5. Paul gives thanks, remembering without ceasing their work of love, labor of faith, and patience of hope, knowing the outflow. What does it cause? Assurance here. Beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The assurance of our salvation really begins with the fact that we are loved by God. He uses the term here, beloved. Beloved gives the indication that this is a state of being, not just a momentary benevolence on God's part. It's the very character of who God is, the very essence of who he is. Isn't it encouraging to know that God could never love us any less? Nor can God ever fall out of love with us. Love is a direct expression of the very character of who he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Folks, if we placed our faith and trust in Christ, isn't that encouraging? He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. In John, 1 John 4, 19, we love him. Why? Not because I have the ability in and of myself to love him. Not because I deserve anything from him. Not because I've earned anything from him. We love him because he first loved us. Well, I find that encouraging when he begins here, knowing beloved, the state of God's being. Paul's intent to use the phrase alongside the terminology of election was not to assert anything about the manner or nature of God's choosing, but to encourage the church with the assurance that they belong to God's people and are the present objects of his love. Look at what else he says in regards to this assurance of our salvation. Again, he's kind of flowing out of 
the work of love, or work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, and then demonstrating it through what he says here. Knowing, beloved, your election by God for our gospel did not come to you in word only. It was not because of persuasive speech. These believers in Thessalonica weren't persuaded because Paul was a powerful preacher. Well, we know that Paul would go into the synagogue and preach, so words had to be used. However, Paul was not looking to stir up an emotional decision by speaking in a way that would guilt the Thessalonians into making professions of faith. I remember there was a preacher one time that we would, we would nickname with double barrel, and I won't say his last name. I don't mean nothing against him. But sometimes the reality of what we would come with is that the, the, the charge of, of emotion and the way that was preached would oftentimes lead people into, into deceiving about, did I really accept Christ? Do I really know for sure? Paul wasn't looking to stir up emotions and emotional decisions by speaking in a way that guilted them. Nor do we try to use the word of God in that way and I hope that we don't from our pulpit here that we would see the truth of God's word as presented in God's way. Paul did not come preaching a gospel of prosperity. That God wants you to be, God wants you to be happy. So believe on him and see him bless your life. Give to him and watch him give you, bless you abundantly. Well, that was probably some of the, the testimony of what these Thessalonian, Jewish Thessalonian uh, the non-converts were, were trying to persuade the Thessalonians of, that Paul's just here for your money. They could see by the evidence of Paul's life that that truly wasn't the case. <laughs> Paul's not holding an invitation with 47 stanzas of just as I am and waiting until someone just comes down the aisle where you feel like you move just so we can go to lunch. <laughs> it is through the word of God, through the declaration of these great promises and the telling and simple narrative of the story of Jesus that men and women are awakened and moved towards God. While our salvation testimonies oftentimes carry emotion, those emotions are often driven by the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts to help us see the reality of our sin and our desperate need of a Savior. Our expression of emotion is out of pure gratitude for what the Spirit has done and is beginning to do in our life. He didn't come with persuasive words. He came through the power of the Holy Spirit. Their assurance of salvation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit could teach the human spirit. <clears throat> he could actually minister to the deepest needs in human lives. The Spirit of God fills the human spirit. He begins to minister to our minds and our hearts from within, opening them up to understand our need of salvation, our need of Christ our need of a Savior. And he continues to work in demonstrating our need to live in dependence upon our Savior. Their assurance of salvation came as a result of the proclaimers' actions matching their words. Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you by, in word only, but also in power and in the Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder, or your talk, yeah, your walk, <laughs> I can't even say it. 
Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Say that 15 times as fast as you can, right? It's going to just sound like a jumbo. Meaning that our actions don't mean anything. Our words don't mean anything if actions don't back them up. And the reality of what Paul gets to in Thessalonica when he's coming into Thessalonica is that his actions have backed up the message of the gospel. His testimony of faith has been backed up in the way that he has lived out his Christian life. The evidence of the change of his life has been seen. And the demonstration of his life moving forward, even in the midst of persecution when people would try to stop him from continuing with the gospel, wouldn't, he would persevere and continue forward. That the reality of Christ at work in him was clearly visible. And Paul knew that the Thessalonians were part of the chosen people of God because he knew the character of the gospel and the Thessalonians received and saw the observable results of conversion in their lives. Conviction is invisible without action. Meaning I can sit here all day and make decisions in my heart, but if I don't act on them or ask for help in committing them to the Lord and committing them in my life, they really don't mean anything. And they yielded their lives to God. And the last detail that I'd like for us to see this morning, this evening, if the origin of the church is in God and if Christ will build his church, then what is our role? We need to see the detail that Paul gives us here of the pattern of discipleship. Verses 6 to 10. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For, you, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The picture that he gives us here, the detail that he wants us to see in this pattern of discipleship is, first of all, that they were imitators of Jesus by way of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. If you flip over to the Acts 17 story of how Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonians, was, was established, the description of these unconverted Jews when they went to the mob and the city rulers was, these men who have turned the world upside down have come to our city as well. They were all too familiar with them. Right before Acts 17 is Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are in stocks and chains, sitting in jail. And at night they're singing, they're sweeter as the day goes by, or every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And then the earthquake happens at midnight. And the Philippian jailer is ready to take his life because he's lost what he was supposed to keep. And yet, because of the testimony of their faith and their walk with Christ and their demonstration of the gospel, the Philippian jailer and his house came to know Christ. It's no doubt, probably, when they got to Thessalonica that the story was already ahead of them. How Paul and Silas had escaped prison through the miraculous working of, a, of an earthquake. And I don't doubt that Paul and Silas probably turned that and say, we didn't do anything, but God did. 
God worked. This is because of God. Give praise to God. I'm reminded as I look at that example that what am I doing? Am I a good imitator of Jesus Christ? You know, we pray as a pastoral staff that we would be examples of what it means to imitate Jesus. Because like Paul, Silas, and Timothy and the church here in Thessalonica, we look into him, we understand that you have us. And it's our responsibility to set that example of what it means to imitate Jesus. Their imitation came at a cost. They found joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. Verse 6, I mean. The joy that's seen here is not an emotion of happiness and of excitement. I like the definition that Pastor Mike would often tell us. The quiet confidence that God is in control. These believers are about to face something that was new, had no idea what they were getting into. And yet the description that comes down to it, the midst of persecution, the things that were going to come at them, the business transactions that were going to change, and the family lifestyles, the challenges that awaited them, and yet the description that Paul uses is the joy of the Spirit was evident. Have you ever had that time in your life where things just don't seem to be going the way you ought, they want, should be going? Uncontrollable circumstances seem to be overwhelming. And you know that your response is to hand it over to the Lord as 1 Peter 5, 7, cast my cares upon the Lord, roll it over to Him. And it gives you a peace that just you can't describe. And yet somebody looks at you and they know that you're going through some things in your life that just don't make any sense. And they ask you this question, what, why are you so calm? And your only answer is because the joy of the Lord. The quiet confidence to know that God is in control. The indescribable manner in which they would endure persecution was proof of the joy in their hearts. It's truly mesmerizing and a reality does become extremely attractive. Why? Because we don't react the way the world reacts or we ought not to. It doesn't mean we don't take action when things are going and we need to take action. But I don't overreact knowing that God is still in control. The focus of their testimony Paul gives us the description here. Your faith towards us has gone out so that we don't need to say anything, but even in verse 8, 7, excuse me, you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in these two areas, but also in every place. Their testimony was seen first in their community. Folks, it is our desire as Tri-City Baptist Church to set an example of what it means to evangelize outside of these walls.
I heard it said earlier this week that the church is for edification of the saints and then we go out and evangelize. Whether I don't disagree that it's we are here to primarily edify and that unbelievers can't come in, but there is a reality that they're not welcome. They're not part of the family. But in all reality, when we leave these four walls, we are still imitators of Jesus. We build relationships with people in our community. Our desire here at Tri-City is not just to receive awards, awards and accolades such as the best in Chandler, but to be a light in a dark world. And folks, you know that doesn't mean as, as the name of Tri-City goes out, it's you as the individual. As I related that, you know, as a pastoral staff, we really desire to be that example. What it means to imitate Christ. Most of us have some sort of community relations that get us outside of these walls. You know how easy it is for us just to stay in our office and to pray and study all day? That doesn't set the example for you on what the Great Commission is. It doesn't set the example for you on what it means to disciple one another. Our desire is that we set the example by building gospel opportunities and relationships that lead to gospel opportunities with others. For some, it's through the chaplaincy ministry that we have. Some, it's just through neighborhood opportunities in our community. Others, it's just through community events. But they're important for us to lead and display that imitation of what it means to be out and about in the world to evangelize the lost. Their focus of their testimony was in their surrounding community, but it's also in the known world. I love even in our own ministry, we have the example of IBCS and IBM that reach beyond here in Chandler, Arizona, the West, and even into the world. I was challenged by this thought even earlier this morning in our ABF, the, one, the further one's light shines, the brighter it must be at home. Folks, if we really want to be global, international, then what are we doing at home to set the example? What is our commitment to Christ here at home He gives us their focus of faith. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul's already alluded to that in his prayer here in verse 3. They had a commitment to their new life in Christ, that they wanted Christ to be the focal point. They were committed to him no matter what the cost. And for lack of time tonight, I may come back and address this a little bit more next week, but they had a heaven-focused. They were heavenly-focused. Their attention was towards heaven. All of the chapters in which Paul writes in Thessalonians, both, both epistles, the first and second, he ends with some sort of eschatological view of the coming of Christ. And in here, he's giving a striking feature about the Thessalonians that they would see the wrath, to, that they would be saved from the wrath to come. 
So in verse 10, not only looks backward at the resurrection, where we see our victory over death assured, but it also looks forward to a time in which Paul calls the wrath to come. This isn't hell. This is not talking about the fact that Christians are delivered from the fires of hell. John 5, 24 records the words of Jesus. He that hears my word and believes in him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. The Thessalonians already knew that. They had learned from Paul that they would not come into that judgment. But here he is talking about a coming wrath. And the use of that present tense indicates that it is something yet future. Jesus says he would also deliver them from that wrath. I'd like to take some time over the next couple of weeks. Maybe next week I'll, I'll, I'll dig into some of that. But I want us to think about a couple of things. Are we living with eternity in view? Does our motivation, our imitation of Christ motivate us to help, us, help others be saved from the wrath to come? What does the tr- picture of Tri-City Baptist Church look like? If Paul were writing a letter to the church of Tri-City Baptist, would he begin with the same description? Would he give thanks to God in the same fashion and same way? Would he commend to the Lord our work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope? Would he describe us as being imitators of Jesus? Do the surrounding areas know who we are? not as a location, but as followers of Jesus. We've had a strong influence around the world because of those who have come before us. Are we content to live off of their testimonies? Or are we really interested in keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, knowing that he could return at any moment? Folks, knowing that Christ could return at any moment should compel us to have a greater urgency of looking for gospel opportunities in our life. Lord willing, next week we'll continue with this concept of a picture and hopefully begin to look at the portrait of an ideal servant in chapter 2. Let's pray.